So the offering of his life is the expression of this eternal relationship, this laying down of self. You know, it's this ultimate expression of the eternal relationship. And in doing that on our behalf, he's inviting us into that same experience, that same relationship. So then we join him. We become, you know, if you think the seed that you plant and the seed that you harvest are genetically identical. Jesus is being multiplied through this act. This is I, it's an insane thing to suggest because John has such a high Christology. He's saying, this guy's God. And now he's saying, y'all are just going to be just like him. Man, that's bonkers, right? Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. And we are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the true faith. We're going to start a series uh, today uh, on encountering Christ through Scripture. And lesson one is entitled, Let There Be Light. Let it be. And the thesis is, natural beauty symbolizes the beauty of God's nature now encountered in Christ. Let me say that again. Natural beauty symbolizes the beauty of God's nature now encountered in Christ. Here's some key words for today. Ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. It refers to the Christian concept of creation as the beginning of all things, ex nihilo. Another key word for today, glory, which means intrinsic personal beauty and its rightful recognition. Next key word, incarnation. That refers in a Christian context to God's joining his own creation through human experience. God enters his own creation through human experience. That's incarnation. Another word for today, sovereign. A sovereign is a sole ruler with rights to act apart from any external consideration. Nathan, tell us about the highlights. Okay. <clears throat> well, I just got these in here because, um, I don't know, you read other training manuals and they have those kinds of things. Mm. So just trying to prep the mind, I guess, for these sorts of things. But yeah, the um, that's where we're going. That's what we're going to unpack. So maybe we could take them uh, one at a time or what. I don't know. That's... I guess that's what we're figuring out, right? Yeah. We're, we're pilot testing mm -hmm. this thing. and um, <clears throat> So, yeah, the idea that is that if the universe, space, time, matter, um, is the product of a, an individual, um, a mind, let's say, then it's got to somehow reflect the essence of that being that would just follow since the idea of the thesis right i mean natural beauty yeah. symbolizes the beauty of god's nature right yeah i mean if there's no pre-existing anything then we can't we can't attribute you know say you were an artist and you're working in clay right and we can say and we can look at the shape of what you've produced and learn something about you but we can't look at the clay itself and say you know, that this has, this is somehow expresses you because it's pre-existing. You didn't create it. You may have chosen it. And that may say something about you, but it's, but the actual nature of what is clay or whatever mm -hmm. is, it doesn't say anything about you because you produce, you acquired it. It, uh -huh. it was there before you got there. Yeah. 
But if we presume that everything came from nothing, that, you know, God has pulled it into existence uh, somehow, um, that everything about it must somehow express him. And so that's this idea of um, the God creating the universe from nothing as significant mm-hmm. and significant as in signaling something, mm-hmm. the sign of a thing. And so uh, that's what we're talking about is that this is uh, creation demonstrates this. Now, this lesson really comes out of um, and, and most of these lessons uh, that we're going to talk about, um, really, I guess, maybe we'll call this um, this series according to Scripture, since we've been beating up on the Bible a little mm-hmm. bit, mm-hmm. If maybe at least from one person's perspective, to show how, while the gospel is the revelation, it is the Word of God, it is rooted in Scripture, and that it, that's an important point to make. So the gospel can... Can live without scripture. Um, Paul, when he goes to Athens, he really appeals to creation, to pagan prophets and poets, um, you know, to the nature of things, to reason. You can see he's doing all that. By the way, that presentation wasn't as successful as his other ones, um, really had a very limited appeal. And you can see that really in post-Christian societies and very secular societies. It, it's, it's a bit like pounding through concrete we can begin with what's assumed, but it's, you know, at least it's harder for people to make that semantic jump. <clears throat> but in every other place in Acts that I'm aware of, that there is a frequent and effective appeal to Scripture. So, you know, the gospel can live without Scripture, but, you know, um, it's kind of like Scripture is its home. It's its, it grew out of Scripture. So an appeal to Scripture Literacy and scripture are all important to being able to understand it. Uh, I think it needs to be grounded in scripture. Uh, Our problem is that while the gospel speaks for itself, we tend to want to manipulate it in some way. You know, in, in a perfect world, the gospel would always proclaim who God is to us. Just the simple story of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. We would get it. But... Because human forces are there trying to twist and manipulate it, it's good to have this pre-existing referent Mm -hmm. um, to compare Mm -hmm. it to. Uh, It just keeps us from going off the rails. I mean, it's an alien message. It's very difficult sometimes for us to even digest in this world. And so um, giving it this kind of substrate allows us to maybe digest it but also retain it in a way that we aren't going to twist it or pervert it which is the common mm-hmm. a common tendency that we have and not just the creedal uh, brief creedal expressions of the gospel in the new testament but actually the whole bible right. once you come to see the whole bible as preaching the gospel right and uh, revealing the gospel and preparing for the gospel then you can actually look to the whole of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, to understand the gospel and to, as you said, keep us on the rails. Right, yeah. I mean, for instance, the gospel, baked into the gospel is a paradox. And that paradox, and and we've talked about this, I think, in in prior episodes, but that paradox is that that God has a, a seething anger towards sin. 
<laughs> you know, that there's this judgment, there's a, a violence there, um, that, there, that this salvation is engineered by God <clears throat> and it's engineered to be violent. You know, you look at the cross and you think, man, that's, that's terrible what humans did, right? But in Isaiah 53, it says that God was pleased to put into grief, mm-hmm. you know, that he's, that God's the one who executed Jesus, crucified Jesus, if you will. And so we can't absolve God of that heinous act in history from our perspective um, that, yes, it was other people that did it, but it was also God. And for a lot of us, we, because we're small and limited and, and we see um, inconsistencies or incompatibilities um, based on our own experience, our own limited range, whereas for God, it's both and. Um, and so I, I think that's why in the Old Testament you get things like in Genesis 50 when Joseph's brothers come to him and they say, hey, uh, don't kill us, uh, you know, we didn't mean it, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And Joseph's like, don't be afraid. You know, you intended it for evil and God intended it for good. It's not that God allowed it for good. God planned it. He executed it through the evil that these brothers mm-hmm. committed. And That's so the sovereignty of God. Both and. One of our key words for today was sovereign. Yeah. All right, so we're working through our highlights. God created the universe from nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a highlight. Because second highlight is because God is the creator of everything, we can learn about his nature and character by observing creation. Mm-hmm. Third highlight, people were made to translate the physical beauty of creation back into the moral beauty of God. Right. That is his glory. But we haven't good. We haven't done a good job of revealing God's glory. In fact, we've fallen short of it. Let me repeat that. People were made to translate the physical beauty of creation back into the moral beauty of God. We're supposed to interpret, interpret the physical beauty of yeah. creation, uh, and and see in it the moral beauty of God. Mm-hmm. And yet, we haven't done a good job of that. The fourth highlight in Jesus Christ, God entered His creation to reveal His glory as a human being. So we could fulfill our purpose of becoming like him. So God went and did as a human what we were meant to do as humans. That's the fourth highlight. Sure. All right. All right. Now we're going to move to this uh, sort of illustration. The universe is expanding. That means at one point in the distant past, it started from an infant, ooh, good word, infinitesimal point. With a, within a trillionth of a trillionth of a second, the universe expanded into existence. Since the, natural, since the, the only natural laws we're aware of dictate phenomena within the universe, they couldn't have accounted for the beginning of the reality we inhabit. Nature must have a supernatural origin. John Clauser, Anton Zellinger, and Elaine Aspect from, were awarded the 2022 Nobel Prize for Physics. Together, their experiments seem to have proven that the universe isn't locally real. Through studies on quantum entanglement, they've demonstrated that consciousness seemingly plays a role in the operating of the universe. On what consciousness did the universe run before humans arrived on the scene? Say what? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, so these are, these are really two truths about the universe, seeming truths uh, that, one... The universe is expanding because it's expanding. It seems that if you run it backwards, so the way we know it's expanding, the Doppler effect, 
If we look in one direction, light is blue. That means the wavelengths are coming, are shortening. That means they're moving toward us. If we look in another direction, they're red, which means that they're widening and moving away from us, which means that we're in the midst of a universe that's expanding. If we run that backward, um, you get down to nothing uh, eventually because um, space and time are one thing. And so as you know, you, you can't say, well, it took X amount of years for this to happen because there was no, there were no years, there was no time. Everything, matter, space, time, they're all bundled together. Where there is matter, there has to be space. Where there's space, there's time. So before the universe was, there was nothing. We know that, at least nothing that we can conceive of mm -hmm. or are familiar with. Um, and there are a lot of theories about it. People, you know, string theory, multiverse, everything's multiverse now. If you look in, you know, uh, fiction, um, there's really no basis for the multiverse except that there, that must be it because we don't know. Right, right. That is that just an alternative to God created the heavens and the earth? Right. Yeah. So when I say supernatural origin, I mean, I think it's fair to say that in the sense that nature, as we understand it, even if you believe in a multiverse or whatever, that I'm saying something that is beyond our the understanding. Natural laws. Yeah. Something right. that is beyond. So if you say you're saying this as a matter of fact, right. um, as a matter of scientific observation, mm -hmm. uh, the, the origin of the universe is supernatural. Right. Because it came out of nothing and we don't understand that. That's beyond our understanding of sure. what is natural. Yeah. Okay. So. And then the other is, has to do with uh, quantum. So in the very small, if we, you know, that's a very large picture, but in the, in very, uh, you know, subatomic level uh, particles that, you know, we, I, maybe we were never meant to observe, but once we do, then we realize, hey, wait, there's, you know, there's a glitch in the matrix. Things do not follow the same rules once we get down into this subatomic level. And it may simply be that everything at the subatomic level is used to, it, uh, let me see, is natively unobserved. Maybe the only reason that things in the, you know, atomic level and beyond um, are, they follow rules that we think run the universe. The only reason for that is maybe because they're regularly observed by the naked eye. You know, maybe they're really, maybe if a tree falls in the woods, it doesn't make a sound. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we always thought it, well, of course it does. Right. And, and even that, that question had to do with perception. Is it a sound if nobody hears it? But we would say, well, there is a crash. It just hasn't been heard by anybody, maybe. But it could be that it doesn't, you know, uh, and nobody can prove that because the whole idea is, is if you can't see it, if you can't hear it, then how can you prove that it doesn't make a sound? Now, we've always assumed that that was true because we thought, well, sound is just a function of things that are happening when we're absent. And that's, we happen to encounter things that are going on when mm -hmm. we don't, when we aren't observing them. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true, uh, but, but it's only a maybe now because we've discovered that certain particles uh, only exist when we're looking at them, or at least they only behave as particles. Mm -hmm. um, if we're not observing them, then they go back to behaving as energy. Um, they, they exist in, in paradoxes that don't have to explain themselves to us and only resolve when we impose 
a decision on them. Okay, so um, there's certain particles that have what's called spin. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's called spin. I, I don't, maybe it's spinning. I don't know. But and the the spin can either be a positive spin or a negative spin. Okay, you get two particles. You entangle them. Once they're entangled. When one particle has a positive spin, the other particle has to have a negative spin. That that's essential. That's true. That you know, there's no way to defy that. Now, here's what happens: is is that neither of them has an essential polarity. They're both positive and negative until one is measured. Once one is measured, once one you know, once we impose and we say, hey, this is positive, the other one has to be negative. And it doesn't matter where in the universe that other particle is. So that, that particle mm -hmm. can be anywhere in the universe. Once we've acknowledged that's positive, the other one has to be negative regardless of where it is. And so there were several questions as to what mediating factors might cause this effect. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> what these guys, these Nobel laureates have established through a series of four separate experiments, each one building on the previous, is that there is there are no mitigating factors. There's nothing that, you know, there's not some sort of secret field that they're connected through. There's not some sort of line of sight effect. There's nothing. It is purely our when we're aware of it, it changes behavior and the other one changes as well. Um, so I could go on and on about that. But all that to say is, is that it appears that the universe is that one force in the universe is consciousness. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our consciousness. Or a consciousness, a, right? It's yeah. conscious of us being conscious of it. Well, I don't know if it's <laughs> conscious, but it is being affected by consciousness. It's affected by consciousness. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's like you're saying the universe performs for us. Well, or for somebody or whatever. Yeah, it seems to be... And, and then down below that certain level, I mean, before we could measure quantum effects, all this stuff was just mm -hmm. moving on, doing its thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, we're building, obviously, atomic particles are dependent on subatomic. And so, so all reality, the basis of reality, if we break everything down to <clears throat> quarks and bosons and, you know, all this other stuff, and we say, well, this is the basis of matter, okay? And it doesn't obey the laws of the universe that, you know, it has a whole different set of rules, but one of those is, you know, they're watching. <laughs> you know, one of those is to, to behave as, as we expect them to when we expect them to. Uh -huh. um, and that seems, and nobody, nobody can answer that. And maybe it's just a God of the gaps thing. And someday somebody will discover that there's something we haven't looked at. But these experiments seem to suggest that that's not going to happen. That the universe isn't locally real, meaning it's not dependent on proximity. Okay? That's not local. Mm -hmm. Nor is it real in the sense that it doesn't continue without our observation. Hmm. Yeah. So when they say, and, you know, I'm not taking this from a Christian source. This is just mm -hmm. from, um, you know, a secular news agency. And I'm going to have to find who it is. I'm, I'm looking for a, there was a, a guy who wrote an article. His name is Chalmers or something. And he is like this super scientist, super brilliant dude. Um, 
and he wrote, you know, he, he, he's been doing definitive work on consciousness. What is it? Neuroscans, other things, you know, we can. So if you're looking at the color brown, we can scan your brain. We can know you're looking at brown. But what we can't find is that part of your brain that says, I'm looking at brown. <laughs> That's your consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't, you know, neuroscience, um, psychology, we can't narrow down what is consciousness. And finally, this guy gave up. He just said, this uh, consciousness is an essential force in the universe. Like, I mean, we don't know what gravity is, mm-hmm. but it's critical to the functioning of the universe. And he's saying that, um, that they're the same. That there's, um, that the, that it is one of the, um, what is it called? Oh, come on. I'm going to have to remember this and take it back out or whatever, right? Uh, what are they called? They're like, uh, they're givens, they're forces uh, in the universe. Like, so you have gravity, you have strong force, weak force, that these are constants, that's the word. They're constants in the universe. This guy suggests that consciousness must be treated as a constant in the universe. Okay. Um, So I think I'm about to drill down to this, the name of this article um, that this guy did. Maybe we can send people to look it up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Or we can put it up on the website or whatever. It's a puzzle of consciousness or something is what it's called. And so this guy... He spent his whole life trying to figure it out, and what he's determined is there's nothing to figure out because it is uh, beyond us. So, well, let's dive into the scriptures and yeah. let's 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 somehow draw them together. Yeah. Psalm 19: The heavens declare the glory of God; the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech; night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech; they use no words; no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. I'm going to read one more, then we're going to start to draw them together. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All right, so let's draw these together. Okay. Yeah, well, it seems that uh, Jesus was a student of creation. Uh, He doesn't quote scripture very often. Uh, really only in arguing with people, with the, you know, the Jewish people around him who are familiar with it, but oftentimes, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that he is looking at and he's saying, you know, look at the birds, look at the flowers of the field. You know, he, he is a student of creation because he's a, he assumes that creation is proclaiming something to us. So... And, and unfortunately, that message can be kind of ambiguous. Uh, we, you can make a lot of it. But I do think that, it, that we ought to 
be aware uh, of of it. I I don't know. Maybe this is a, this is a bias that I have. But why do you think that religious faith is more common in rural areas than it is in urban areas? What do you think? Mm. Well, I mean, there's the sociological sort of answer that's like, well, ideas progress through society and then they, they sort of progress more rapidly in cities, mm-hmm. urban areas, and so urban areas become more secular as secular ideas progress. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Um, I mean, we're, we're so connected now, though. I mean, it, to a large degree, curricula and stuff in schools has to be media, mass media, other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's probably a lot of different factors mm-hmm. involved. But here's one guess, and that is in an urban environment, you're surrounded by man-made things all the time. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing the reflect, you're seeing it's sort of a man-centered world versus a God-centered world. If you're living out yeah. in the country, you're seeing the glory of God in creation. Um, more, It's more in your face. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look up at night in the city and, you know, you can't see the stars. Smog. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience. You just look up and there and there's a smallness mm-hmm. that you just naturally feel and you mm-hmm. see just how vast everything is up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people go to the Grand Canyon and have, even if they're not religious people, this feeling is kind of catch in their spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about the vastness of creation, uh, there's something about this idea of beauty mm-hmm. and our ability to recognize it. So the, we, we read from Psalm 19, the heavens declare mm-hmm. the, go- the glory of God. Yeah. And you're, that's what you're, you're drawing that one in, that, mm-hmm. that insight in to the discussion right now. The heavens right. declare to us something about God's nature yeah. and our nature in relationship to him. Right. Yeah. And... Again, I, and we, we see this in even animals, that there there's at least some sort of a rudimentary appreciation of things that are beautiful. Now, what is that? Um, I, I, I struggle to even try to account for it from a purely naturalistic mindset, but that we would go out of our way to observe natural beauty that we would try to reproduce it in art and other things that that there's somewhat of an objective universal appreciation for what is beautiful and what is ugly you know that there's so you know why why is that a thing Uh, what benefit does it confer it if it does it's a secondary one you know um so you could you maybe come up with a purely naturalistic explanation for it, but it seems that beauty is valuable for its own sake, and that's why it's why it is beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, the, there's a utilitarian nature to some beauty, I suppose. Um, but when it comes to natural beauty, just a sunset, mm-hmm. right? Rainbow, you know, whatever you want to look at, you know, a river, an ocean, something like that, that there's... Um, there's something about that that just to drink it in, not to exploit it or anything, is valuable. That mm-hmm. we want to do that. So that would suggest that whatever is behind this is 
also appreciates beauty or is beautiful in mm-hmm. some way. And, and so that's kind of, I think, would be point one, that there's a general glory, a moral beauty to God that is expressed in the created realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this moral beauty is immaterial without relationship, uh, without some sort of exchange or... So let's just say you, you're, the most, you're the most brilliant artist in the world, you know, and, and you're just a genius and no one's ever been quite like you in, in how you just evoke, you know, you, you're creating these, these works and yet, so let's just say some genie comes and he gives you the power to be the greatest artist of all time, mm-hmm. but you're also cursed in that no one can see your creation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So what's the value to that? You know, that would just be a curse. There would be no upside to it. You know, mm-hmm. you could just, you're just producing this thing, these things. And the more beautiful they are, the more tragic they are. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so beauty presumes observers. It, it presumes the appreciation, this uh, exchange between artist and patron or whatever you want to call it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's where John kind of comes in in that when he speaks of the basis of creation as being light. John 1? Yeah. You want to read it? Yeah. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah. So... John is taking, and we could spend we could spend multiple episodes on just this passage. I mean, it's it's so multi layered, um, and and John is is using somebody else's ideas here. I, I want us to get that. Um, so when I was in college, I had a Western Civ professor who, like pretty much all of my professors in my freshman year, thought it was his job to dismantle Christian faith in the students. That's fine. Take, you know, take your best shot. Um, but his contention was that John plagiarized a guy named Heraclitus, mm-hmm. right? Heraclitus was a, a sixth century BC pre-Socratic philosopher. We don't know much about it. Not much of his stuff survived. You know, we just have fragments that are directly from him. Most of what we know about him is Aristotle kind of, in, a, in kind of an absentia debate with him as he's saying Heraclitus got it wrong here and you know obviously this guy wasn't clear thinking because his uh, grammar is terrible and his writing is unclear which really says more negative things about Aristotle than it did about Heraclitus because Heraclitus wrote what he wrote with, with this intentional ambiguity because he's inviting his readers, his hearers to engage with a mystery, to solve a puzzle. And his contention is that all of our experience, our lived experience is teaching us something, that there's a wisdom message written in our experience of nature. You know, so he would say something like, uh, and it's, it's been 
misquoted to say a man never steps in the same river twice, right? But the the way it's said, the way in, in I don't remember the specific in the Greek, but he's just saying that the same man doesn't step in the same river twice, essentially. He's mm-hmm. saying that the man is different and the river is different every mm-hmm. time they they encounter one another, even mm-hmm. as the river is shifting and moving. The man is in constant flux and change. Mm-hmm. And so, but, so he's taking something that's obvious, but then he's, he's trying to apply that to a message on how to live, how to think about the universe, how to get in sync with the way things are. Now, that message of the universe, he called the word, mm-hmm. right? The logos. Mm-hmm. And so John grabs Heraclitus's ideas. By the way, he's writing and he's ministering in Heraclitus's hometown. Heraclitus was from Miletus, which is right outside of Ephesus. So John, all of his stuff is written to people in Asia Minor, to Christians in Asia Minor. So these are people who have Heraclitus as a part of their thought life, okay? And so, and John even uses Heraclitus's devices, his, his turning of a phrase around a single word, there's so many different ways that Heraclitus would build meaning into the very structure of what he was saying, okay? And so when John takes this, he takes this idea of the word, but then he's saying, this isn't just some random message. You can't have a message without somebody who's speaking it, you know? Um, and that's where Heraclitus, Heraclitus didn't really have a very firm theology, Right? He's a philosopher, not a mm-hmm. theologian. Mm-hmm. So he's just saying, here's how you find out how to live. Observe nature. Right. Now, John would say, yes, that's true. But who's speaking this message? Where does this message come from? This message that's in nature. Right, right. And so John is acknowledging, yeah, Heraclitus, you're right. But this message is a person. It comes from a person. And so in the beginning was the word, yes. And the word was God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and and the word was with God and the word was God. So there's this, he's saying that at the basis of reality is this, not only this message, but the speaker of the message. Mm -hmm. And that message then he brings into the Hebrew, you know, because Heraclitus believed there was no beginning to the universe. He thought it was a continuous circle. And now John begins to use the Hebrew milieu and grab, you know, he starts with the Hebrew in the beginning, and then he takes the pagan was the word. Right? Yeah. Because Heraclitus would have said there's no beginning, but he begins with in the beginning. Right. And then he says was the word. Right. And so now he's saying, he's bringing these two ideas into one, this Jew and Gentile idea, and he's saying this is a cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. And that it is that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? And... So what I was saying about art having to have an observer, that they're at the basis of reality, I think what, what John would tell us is that at the basis of reality isn't just a, an artistic genius, but a relationship. Because without an observer, just like we said, with you know, the universe runs on consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with, without a, an observer, without somebody who is actually appreciating what was created then why create does it even matter mm-hmm. and so there is this community this this ancient community and that at the basis of this community is this moral beauty that is glory so when he says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us 
you know. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the beginning is is this community, and this community has fellowship. They are in union. They commune together. And when we look at creation, what we see is the product of this ancient union. Mm-hmm. Okay. The heavens are telling the glory of God. Right, right. But God as a community, mm-hmm. right? The word was with God and the word was God. Mm-hmm. So God, not God as just some solitary genius who wants us to be impressed, but God who is already impressed. God who already has all the audience he needs, right? God who is simply pouring out and accepting again and pouring out and accepting again within, within the Trinity, mm-hmm. right? And, and so how can that relationship, if the beauty of creation is the product of relationship, how can we fully appreciate it when we are alienated from the creator, right? And that's really what happened at the beginning that there's this alienation that happens that we decided not to participate in the basis of this eternal relationship, which was faith or was just this implicit trust, right? Losing of oneself and the other and then receiving oneself back all the more. Mm-hmm. The beauty of that intimacy eternally, right? And then light has blown out from this light. Visible light demonstrates to us that that kind of unguardedness Right, because if we come out into the light with the people around us, we are we make ourselves visible, visible. Mm-hmm. We make ourselves naked and unashamed. Then there is this adjoining into that society, that community. So how do we really, how do we fully appreciate this ancient relationship when we've been alienated? Well, what if he came and lived among us? And that, so that's John's contention is, is that this glory, it cannot be fully appreciated from a distance. Mm-hmm. For us to fully appreciate it, it has to just be in our living room. It has to be in our kitchen. It has to go to us, go with us where we go. It has to be involved in our life. And so he made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Right. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Right. Yeah. And then, so Jesus demonstrates that essence. And then the, I think the part of the ultimate expression of, of that glory is the, is the cross. Right. What's the verse that you think really brings that forward here from our notes? Uh, is it first John 12, John 12, 23 through 24 is how Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Glorified. There's that word again. Mm-hmm. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Right. So what is, uh, how would Jesus, how would the Son of Man be glorified? The hour has come. I'm going to be glorified. But what's he referring to next? Right. Yeah. His his death in order to produce um, a flourishing, right. a harvest. Right. So this is the pouring out of self, right? This is the beauty of the Trinity of this community, the pouring out of self to receive again. And um, yeah, so. So he's glorified through the process of his giving up of himself 
rising and producing a harvest of replicating himself in people throughout humanity and throughout history. Yeah. As they uh, believe the gospel. Right. So the offering of his life is the expression of this eternal relationship, this laying down of self. You know, it's this ultimate expression of the eternal relationship. And in doing that on our behalf, he's inviting us into that same experience, that same relationship. So then we join him. We become, you know, if you think the seed that you plant and the seed that you harvest are genetically identical. Jesus is being multiplied through this act. And this is an insane thing to suggest because... John has such a high Christology. He's saying, this guy's God. And now he's saying, y'all are just going to be just like him. Man, that's bonkers, right? Mm -hmm. In John 8, Jesus says, when you have exalted the Son of Man, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I'm he. Right? So there's this, this final expression that comes in this paradoxical package but Jesus is shining this moral light. So we, we should have been able to ascertain it. One of the things about Heraclitus, he was also called the weeping philosopher because nobody ever listened to him. Mm. <laughs> His great, you know, most of it was people are too stupid to understand the word. And I think John would, would agree with that, you know, but he's saying, and because of that, the word has become flesh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? He's, he's answering. So Heraclitus is, is, he dies in frustration. He actually becomes like John the Baptist at the end of his life. He just disappears into the wilderness, lives off what he can. He just can't be around people anymore. And and so Heraclitus's philosophy, his work becomes this big question mark, just like a lot of the Old Testament is waiting to be answered. Mm-hmm. And so John brings that in. He says, look, here's the answer, right? Yeah, people were too dense, but that's okay because... God loves us enough that this that this message has become a human. Mm-hmm. Well, and in, in theology, we learn about natural revelation versus special right. revelation, and one of the things that's typically said is that natural revelation is it's real. God reveals truth, but but it doesn't save us because it it doesn't it, there, there, people either it doesn't provide sufficient information or we're too dense right. um, to get it. So God provides special revelation right. in Christ in the gospel. Right. Yeah. So that's this idea. Uh, and so for John, John looks at this, this first words of Genesis in the beginning, you know, and, and then he's, and the first element in creation, light, and he, uh, he sees an early proclamation of the gospel, John does. And mm-hmm. John, John said, you know, John seems to be saying that this light is the, the character, the nature of God. And that it is the product of, a, of this relationship, or it is the, I don't know if it's a product, but it's an expression of this relationship. Mm-hmm. It's the way this relationship works. Mm-hmm. And so he makes this, this case, and then he says that life was the light of men. So that there is a way of living, a lifestyle that is illuminating to humankind, right? And, and so... Uh, John is, is basically saying that this that the message that the word is a life a lifestyle a life of and, and you're talking about this faith this trust this giving and receiving this life of right. the Trinity 
Right. So John is seeing, so your point, look, if we zoom out and we say, what are we doing here? We say we're doing a series on seeing the gospel in Scripture. Mm-hmm. We're saying John John is saying that he sees the gospel in Genesis chapter 1. Right. That, right. I mean, John, if you look at John's uh, first letter, the book of First John, he keeps saying, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and he's not saying when we started preaching it to you. He, he's going back. He's saying this is what God has been saying all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it says something to us about how we should read the first chapters of Genesis. Uh-huh. Right. Maybe we shouldn't be super literal about six right. days. There's a um, theological meaning there. Right. 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 And so that Genesis one is constructed like a poem. It's a it's an ode mm-hmm. to God, the creator. Um, and John takes that and says, well, what should we learn (laughs) about God the Creator from this? And and one is that he lives in this community of self-expression, vulnerability, if you will, transparency, that there is this giving up of self and receiving of self, and that that is the life that is at the basis of reality, and it is what is being shared with us so what natural light does in the world, it exposes, it nourishes, it warms. So the personality of Christ and the environment that is God, you know, it, it participates in all of these things in a, in a relational context and that we have to participate in it as well as we look to him. So he becomes this rising sun in the cross. Hmm. You know, hmm. and, and so we look up and we see light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of one of these other passages. Second Corinthians, the light of the gospel of the glory of God mm-hmm. in the face of Christ. You were just seeming to refer to that. Yeah. Second um, Corinthians chapter four. We'll close with this. The God of this age, Paul writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, quote, let light shine out of darkness, end quote, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Amen. That sort of brings it home, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for your time. If you have questions, email us to discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com.